And let's continue our study in Revelation tonight as we turn to Revelation chapter 13. We are continuing to learn much about end time events. And someone mentioned to me, it's interesting, you know, how John presents the material. It's not quite like the chart that we have uh, there on the wall back there. The charts are helpful. But they're all sequential, and the events are named. You have these judgments, and then these judgments, and so on. And in the middle of the book of Revelation, it kind of puts that on pause as we've gone through now the, the trumpet judgments, and we're being readied for the seventh trumpet judgment, which will end up being the bowl judgments that we will eventually get to. There's like this long pause while uh, John describes a number of, of different things here. Um, it, it, it's interesting and in why he describes it as such, but I think there's a purpose for this. In the midst of the descriptions of this terrible judgment, this great tribulation, seven years of tribulation, and now we're uh, getting into the last three and a half years and what will happen during that time. Technically, the second part of the tribulation is what's known as the Great Tribulation because of the the great and terrible judgments that will take place and continue to take place. I think in the midst of this, it's uh, God wanted John to remind us of some important things because there could be some questions that come up. And one of those is, well, what about God's people during that time? Will they still be able to function and witness, and will uh, God protect them? And so if you remember, we were told about the two witnesses, those that will be given supernatural powers to proclaim Christ during this very difficult time, this last half of the tribulation. And no one will be able to stay their message until God allows for the Antichrist, uh, it seems, to have victory over them with the power of Satan. Um, and yet, after they're killed, they will be resurrected after three days, and everybody will see the power of God and know that the power of Satan is uh, limited and is no match for God's power. And we see that. Then we see um, the 144,000 witnesses that have the seal of protection on them, um, that will be about being witnesses as well um, in this last half. And then um, there might be the question, well, what is all this about anyway? Why all this judgment? What and, and, and sin needing to be taken care of. So we're given the grand picture of the cosmic battle of history in chapters 12 and 13, where we have um, Satan being introduced as a dragon, and God's people, the nation of Israel, uh, giving birth to the Messiah and Satan, um, hoping to take over and take the child away. And God protects um, that child. That is, of course, the coming of Christ. And it says that it was taken up into heaven, and that was the ascension of Christ. And so Satan failed in his most important aspect of his plan, that was to keep the Messiah from coming and to provide salvation, and he utterly failed in that. And then we find out that um, probably in the midst of the tribulation, Satan just decides to risk all and attack the forces of heaven. 
And of course, that doesn't go his way as Michael the Archangel brings the forces of heaven to play and he's thrown out of heaven for good. Again, still today, Satan has access to heaven. But one day he won't anymore. And you can imagine after all of his greatest plans are thwarted, he couldn't stop Christ from providing atonement for us. He couldn't stop the Messiah from coming. He couldn't take over heaven. When and and again, we talked about this after the service last week. You think that Satan would get the point? I mean, he can surely read scripture. We don't know. And it's probably a good thing we don't understand what motivates Satan in this way, but obviously he's he's dulled or he doesn't care about scripture. If I had to guess, I think he's just so angry at God that he'll stop at nothing. And maybe you've known someone or maybe you've had an instance where you've been so mad you're not even thinking straight and you just want to get revenge. I think that's what we have with Satan, that he wants to get revenge and he wants to... Um, he wants to be the victor over God and his forces, that he doesn't care about any of this. He'll just try and try and try until he's finally vanquished. Well, we saw at the end of chapter 12 that he is thrown down to earth, and that made him even more angry. He's furious. Look at uh, chapter, or, chapter 12, verse 17. The dragon became furious with the woman. That's the nation of Israel. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Those are um, in direct context, they would be the believing offspring of the Jewish people. But I think in general, it would be the, the, the saints at this time that follow after God. He makes war on them. We'll see more about that in chapter 13. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Something amazing is going to happen, something terrible in chapter 13. What we're going to see now, the enemy will grow more desperate and dangerous after being thrown out of heaven. And his program will be vicious and domineering. The hope we have in this chapter is that it makes clear that he will only be allowed to do this for a limited time. He's only allowed to let all this take place and to have a... a, a semblance of rule and victory for a limited time. And folks, as we continue to read in chapter 13 of Revelation about the temporary success of Satan and his minions, we need to remember, and we can remain confident, that in the end, God will overthrow his enemy. So take heart, even as we go through this very uh, troubling passage tonight. The enemy rules but it's on borrowed time. It will not be permanent. Let's go ahead and uh, read, starting at verse 5 of chapter 13. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority. Notice it was allowed. God is allowing it to take place for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Let's skip down to verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Father, we're so thankful 
that Lord, according to how we we see scripture and, and how we believe you've led us to interpret this, that the Spirit has made it clear that the believers won't even be a part of this tribulation period, and we're so grateful for that. But we know there will be those who name the name of Christ who will have to go through terrible things in this last half of the tribulation. Lord, even with that, we know that you have stated, as we just read, you'll provide endurance and you will enable them to get through. So, Lord, tonight as we go through this difficult chapter, remind us that whatever we're facing tonight, this week, that you will help us to endure and that you will enable us to go through these things because you will be with us and that's all that we need. If that's true in the last half of the tribulation, it's certainly true for us today. Let's be reminded of that as we work through and discuss this passage. Give us understanding. Help us then to continue in the things we've learned, independence on Jesus Christ. And that we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in the first 10 verses, as we see the enemy rules on borrowed time, we're going to see the enemy will be allowed to conquer for a limited time, and he will be allowed to rule with power and authority. And as Satan then is standing on the sand of the sea, near the sea, we get to chapter 13 and verse 1, and John says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Dragon, Satan himself, is standing by the shore, and this terrible beast rises out of the sea. And he resembles this dragon, Satan, with these seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns. Strange indeed. And it also then, on each of its heads, has blasphemies written against God. And you know when it starts out the chapter that way, that's not going to make for um, exciting. or Well, it may make for exciting, but it's, it's going to be terrible indeed. And uh, it's going to be difficult to get through. Now, as we run through the description of this beast, though, does it resemble something that we've heard in Scripture before as we're trying to make, to figure out what, why John's including this? What's this all about? Does anybody remember a passage that resembles what we just read? The leopard, the bear, the lion's mouth, seven ten horns. It would be in the Old Testament. Turn to Daniel. I did hear somebody say Daniel. Just turn briefly to Daniel 7 because this is the one of the keys to understanding. Daniel 7. And 1 through 7, I'll read through this quickly. This beast is described in pretty much in, in, in similar terms in this passage. As Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed, he wrote down the dream. Look at verse 2. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And as I looked at its wings, it were flicked off, 
and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side. And then verse 6, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. The beast had four heads and dominion was given it to it. And then here comes this fourth beast in verse 7. This uh, I saw in the night visions a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And it had great iron teeth and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. Now we see this beast again, and it seems really that the beast is now a compilation of all the beasts that Daniel saw in chapter 7. But in the end, um, it most effectively describes that last beast, and that's the one we want to focus on, that fourth beast that was so terrifying to Daniel. We'll skip ahead to Daniel. Let's go to verse 17 or verse 19. Because he wanted to know, all these beasts were strange. But Daniel wanted to know specifically about that fourth beast. Verse 19, but desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and devoured and stamped in verse 20 about the ten horns that were on its head. And then this other horn that came up, um, it had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things. Note that the ability to win people over with its speed. We're going to see that ability in the beast here in just a few minutes. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And then he reminds us of what's coming at the end until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Skip ahead to verse 24. It helps us understand what those ten horns are that we see in Revelation. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and that's referring, remember we looked at this before. And he will, verse 25, speak blasphemous words as well. For time, times, and a half a time, that last three and a half years of the tribulation. And so we have enough information to put together with, go back to Revelation 13 now. And this beast is best seen as the fulfillment of what was told Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. These ten horns, seven heads, and... Thankfully, John is going to describe, give us more details in chapter 17 about what these ten horns and seven heads are referring to. So, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on that, but I'll just give you, so, so you're not distracted. Why would this beast have seven heads? Well, he was to match the dragon who had seven heads. Well, we find out later on in chapter 17 that this uh, probably best to represent the great world kingdoms of the earth throughout history. As we found out in the book of Daniel in chapter 7, um, those different beasts represented Babylon <clears throat> and the Medes and the Persians and Greece and Rome. And these seven heads would represent those, would also probably represent Egypt and Assyria 
the great kingdoms of the earth that Satan would have had a part in and their might and their cruelty. But then that seventh head seems to be the one that's directing all, and that would be, as we will see here soon, that would be representative of the Antichrist. And we've talked about this before. The, the ten horns on this beast seem to best reflect a alliance with ten kings, with the beast being the head over all those kings, powerful kings over the earth. And the Antichrist, the beast, will be the head over all them because of the crowns that he wears. He's allowed to have a crown. He's allowed to have authority. And at the end of verse 12, we find that Satan himself gives this beast his power, his throne, and great authority. So um, this then, this terrible beast, will end up being the vehicle of the dragon to accomplish his last gasp. We say his last hurrah, his last program of domination and rule. And what we're going to see is really this, this, this uh, plan that the dragon has, that Satan has, is not original. Satan can claim no originality, by the way. He has to deceive and he has to make copies and uh, very poor copies, as we'll see here as well, of uh, the things of God. But as we continue to read through this, we'll see a resemblance to some things, twisted replicas of deity. It's even described a trinity of sorts here, as we have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet described together, and even a resurrection from a mortal wound that was fatal to the beast, and he's brought back to life. And later, even, as the false prophet is described, as a lamb performing powerful signs. And so these will have some reflection um, to the things of God, but in other ways, they're, they're uh, terribly inaccurate, and they're distorted and twisted, and they don't represent the beauty of God. As you, can, as you can think back, even as what we understand from Scripture, that Lucifer himself, Satan, was once an angel of light, and he rejected God and rebelled against him, and look how he's described now. He's ugly. He's bloodthirsty. He's filled with hate. There's nothing beautiful in Satan's replicas, as we see here. And uh, they're terrible. They're intimidating. But they are replicas or copies. They're not the real thing. Isn't it true that even in many cults today that try to pull off the fact that they follow after Jesus too, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and, and others, when you actually talk to them and they describe the Jesus that they serve, there's something very disturbing because you realize that it doesn't follow after the Christ, the Savior of Scripture, that they've minimized him, that they have watered down his power, and they don't recognize him as a deity. And yet there are people um, that watch from outside that don't know a lot about Christ and look at that and say, well, they, they seem like nice people, and they're following after Jesus as well. Why, why can't you all get along? And they don't understand that the Jesus that these folks have replicated, have made their own copies of, really are nothing like our glorious Savior, the Lamb of God. And we know that. And we're disturbed when we see copies um, that don't match the original. Um, 
but they do fool other people. And we're going to see that to the unbelieving world, they very much will be fooled by these very inferior copies of the real thing. God will allow all of this for his purposes. Now, with that in mind, let's get back then um, to verse 3. As we see this beast that has been given the power of Satan and his authority and his rulership, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. We're going to be told later how he died. But the world's going to look at this, and at this point, let's again be clear, it seems best to seem to, to take this, interpret this as the Antichrist, and we'll continue to see that. This is the Antichrist that we've already talked about, the one that is put, putting himself as a replacement or as a replica to the real thing, but he wants to be known as Christ, but he's empowered by Satan, um, and in order to kind of pull off this duplicity, He's he uh, is he dies by a mortal wound, and then somehow or another, God allows Satan to raise um, this individual from the dead, and the whole earth sees this and they marvel at this. Why? And they would have seen probably even on the media and things. Remember, the Antichrist was already a powerful ruler that would have conquered and dominated, and when they see him die. Uh, the whole world sees this, and then he's brought back to life. They're going to be amazed and marveled, and it's going to draw them to him. And they're worshiping this beast. It says, verse 4, they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? When they worship this beast in awe of his supposed resurrection, are really, in effect, worshiping Satan through this. And they're convinced, though, through this, that he's all-powerful. Now, that is a truly foolish assumption, is it not? The world is deceived in looking at this beast, this minion of Satan, and saying, who can defeat him? Well, folks, we know, and we know who's going to defeat him in the end. The world is deceived in this. And isn't it interesting as well? Well, actually, more than interesting, it's tragic. The world rejected Jesus Christ, but at this time, they will embrace Satan's servant. And that is truly tragic, and that will have eternal consequences for these folks as they continue to follow after Satan's devices. But Satan will, for a while, at this time, rule with power and authority, and he will war, unfortunately, against God and his people. And this next verse, verse 5, describes and matches the description of that little horn in Daniel 7 that talked a lot and blasphemed God. Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, arrogant and blasphemous words toward God. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Again, that's three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. As galling and appalling as these blasphemies are, folks, we have to realize that it, these things are being allowed. 
The beast was given an ability to do this. It says he was allowed to do this, to exercise authority. And in context here, that is saying that God is allowing this. And God has his purposes for this, but God is in control of all of this. Even these terrible blaspheming, they're arrogant. They're all encompassing about God. He blasphemes God's nature and those with him in the heavenly dwelling place. The angels and the saints that are with him together, he blasphemes them all. And God is going to continue to allow this individual to have victory for a time, even over his own servants. And this, this individual will literally be able to accomplish world domination, which is something that every tyrant that ever has come up in world history has desired to do, right? Uh, there, you know, there's always been a desire, and, and I think I think Satan throughout history has had his antichrist ready, ready for if God were to allow the tribulation to take place in his program, I've got one ready, because as we know throughout history, there's been no deficiency of people that have wanted to rule over the world, but this man, this person will be victorious in having world domination, and God will allow that for a while, and even allow, as hard as it is to believe, for this Antichrist, this beast, to receive worship. And I think part of that is, is so the whole world, and even maybe the saints, I don't know how much we're going to be seeing this from above. I kind of hope that we're going to be so occupied with the marriage supper of the Lamb that we won't have to watch a lot of this personally. But if we are, it'll be a reminder to us of Satan's objections or his objectives that are on full display, that he's always wanted to be the one that rules, that he's always wanted to usurp God and has no love for God and blasphemes his truth. And this will be very apparent as the beast has this time of victory. And this will affect the saints. And let's continue to read here, verse 7. It was allowed also to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nations. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This is interesting. It is made, made clear that God's people will again go through great difficulty at this time. As Satan will unleash perhaps his most vitriolic revenge and uh, devastation upon people of God. And God says that they will suffer through this, but that they will endure. How do we know that? Because these folks, these people, they were written in the book of life from the beginning of the created order, and they will refuse to worship. As powerful as this beast will be allowed to be, there will be God's faithful people that will say, no, I will not worship you. And people will see the power of God, and they will lose their lives for that but they will stand firm against him. You know what the encouraging part is in that? Is that it reminds us again of this idea, of this uh, truth of God's election. That God has his people written down in the book of life at the very beginning of creation, folks. And again, that two-sidedness is 
and election and God's choosing is made so apparent here in this picture. And yet man still has a responsibility to choose Christ in faith. Both of those are true. But God's people will stand firm because he has chosen them and selected them. And they will be able to endure. But there's a warning still, verse 9. It's going to be difficult. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, this is not for the church, for those that are have been raptured away. This is for those that remain during this last terrible time of the tribulation. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. These people of God will refuse to worship and they will pay a heavy price. And John here gives a proclamation to the saints at that time. And it may sound harsh, folks. But he says, your martyrdom, the giving of your life has been decreed by God. And so you need to accept this and trust him. Then it will all be worth it in the end. God has decreed that harm would come to his people for a limited time for his purposes. That's hard for us to take and understand sometimes. You know, folks, if that's the case for these, these people, then that also means that whatever trials that we're going through today and this week, and things we don't even know about yet that are going to happen this week, that God has ordained all those troubles in our lives for his purposes too. And he calls for us to endure through those very difficult things. Now, we're not going to have to face the wrath of the Antichrist. Praise the Lord. Whatever you're going to face this week, it's not going to be this. That's a wonderful relief, let me tell you. I don't, I don't, I don't follow any other interpretation, you know, for that and many other reasons. I don't want to know. I don't want to be a part of this. But God will bring you through the difficulties that he will allow into your life this week. And he will enable you, as he says here, to endure and give you the ability to do so. And remember, this is only for a limited time. And God's trials that he allows into our lives are for a limited time. And they don't last for eternity. And we need to find hope in that. Well, we're not done yet. Because there's another strange creature that comes out, this time instead of the sea, out of the earth. And the enemy will be allowed to deceive for a limited time, but he will be able to deceive with great signs and also demand worship from all living people. Verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. Resemblance. But there's a lot of difference, isn't there, between this lamb and the glorious lamb that stood, the lamb that was slain that had died for our sins. This lamb had not died for anyone's sins. And it's a very poor representation indeed, evil. But it had two horns. But it can't fool us. It still spoke like the dragon. The voice of the dragon, the blasphemies of the dragon, probably this beast, this creature in particular, it has a more smooth way of introducing um, false doctrine and blasphemy to allow it to be uh, more understood and embraced by the people. But he will be given all of the authority of the Antichrist, of the first beast, 
in its presence, verse 12. He makes the earth and the inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And how is he going to do this? He performs, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Now, that would seem to make an impression, would it not? As this um, beast comes out of the earth, why does he come out of the earth when the other comes out of the sea? Well, um, in Bible times, there was great terror and danger associated with creatures of the sea. And so um, for a, a creature to come out of the sea meant no good thing normally. But this person, th this beast comes out of the earth, and it's supposed to, I think, represent one that is lesser. It's not as powerful as the one and, and terrible as the one that comes out of the sea. But it's still terrible enough as it comes out of the earth. And maybe it's uh, more of a human form in that way, as it shows. Probably the best way, and, and many um, interpreters have referred to this creature as the false prophet who represents world religion. The Antichrist is the one uh, that represents world politics and will dominate overall. But yet this creature that we'll call the false prophet is more uh, focused on religion and having people worship the Antichrist. And so he's um, accurately called a false prophet in that way, the false prophet, because he will demand all the earth dwellers give devoted service and worship the beast. And he's given the authority to do so. He doesn't have the authority on his own, but he's given that authority for a limited time to do so. And so at the end of verse 12, he will make all the inhabitants worship the beast. And again, these great signs, and people will willingly follow after him too, right? As they see the Antichrist and he's resurrected from this mortal wound, we'll hear more about that in a minute, and this false prophet that's able to call down fire from heaven, and people will say, well, the Christians, they have their stories about Elijah, but here we have this guy, and he's able to actually do it, and we've seen it. We follow him anywhere, and they'll be deceived. And so they will willingly follow him in worshiping the beast. And he'll continue to do signs, verse 14, by the signs that is allowed, that it is allowed, he has to have permission. God allows these things to happen. To work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet live. Now we're told how the, the Antichrist, the beast, died. It was um, a fatal blow by a sword, something of that nature that everybody will have seen. And at some point he comes back to life and is able to gather the whole world around him and they worship him. And so this minion of his, this false prophet, gets the people to make an idol, an image. And he's able to deceive with great signs, and then he's also able to demand worship from all of the earth dwellers at this point. And he does some more spectacular things here. Um, it was allowed, verse 15, to give breath to the image of the beast, this idol that he has them create, so that this idol, this image of the beast, might even speak. It might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Is strange but true. 
And that is that as they create this idol, this false prophet will be given the ability to make this idol at least seem like it can breathe, like it's living, and can actually talk. And this idol will demand that people worship it, and he will call for judgment on the people of God who refuse to worship. Reminds me all the way back with Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the last three in particular, that were called to worship idol of King Nebuchadnezzar and would not bow, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And God kept them from that. But these folks will lose their lives for standing for Christ. And both of those, whether God delivers, like he did with the three men in the Old Testament, or he allows them to lose their lives and they go to heaven, folks, both of those are in God's purview because he decides what will bring him the most glory. And we have to be submissive to that. And in this case, to allow these folks to stand against the false prophet and the beast, and so they're slain, gives God glory, and he allows for these things to happen. Well, it's not over yet. Now we have this strange mark that many, many people uh, think about and refer to and are almost superstitious about. Verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Now John is calling for us almost like a riddle, but he's saying, uh, when this happens, God's people will be able to know and understand what's going on here. God will give them wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. What is going on here? Well, the followers of the beast will be given their own mark. Again, they're trying to duplicate what God in heaven has done. Remember, he's marked his people, but for protection. But the beast and the false prophet will mark their people more, you think more of this, not a mark of protection, but like a tattoo of selection. If you have this tattoo, this mark, then you will be selected to be able to buy the necessities of life. But those who refuse will not be able to obtain the basics of life, food, clothing, shelter. It'll be very difficult for them. They, Those that follow after the beast will be marked and those that follow after Christ at this difficult time will be known as well. But what about this number? Well, probably best to look at this as some sort of representative of the beast's name. And we don't know what that means. If you follow the Greek here and how this is phrased, I think it best means that somehow this beast, the beast will have a name that will coordinate or fit with that number 666. And as you can imagine, people for hundreds of years have had all kinds of theories about what this what this might be. And folks, I don't know. And in fact, I'll tell you this, I'm glad that I won't be there. I don't need to know. I don't need to know what the name is going to be of the beast and how that um, matches with this number 666. The church won't be around to find out. The people, the saints that are there at that time will be able to figure this out, and they'll be able to mark this. Let me just add something real quick as far as a side note here. I, I, we talk, and sometimes we joke around about you know um, getting 
computer chips put under the skin and things like that. And, you know, are we going to be facing some sort of mark of the beast very soon um, where everything that we purchase, we're going to scan our hands and different things like this. And people talk about, was it going to have the number on there and things? And we, we can, I don't even know if joking about it's a very good thing to be involved in. But I do think that sometimes Christians get use this number as a little bit of superstition. Like they don't even want to talk, well, what, what, if the, what if the government does this? And what if we have to? And I want to remind you that we won't be around to have to worry about this. We're not going to have to submit to a microchip under the skin to this point where um, we're not going to be able to buy things and, and that somehow relates to what's talked about here. Folks, we're going to be with Jesus. Don't let this number, sometimes people find this number on, on tickets and different things and they get, oh no, it's 666 or something like this. They get a little too superstitious. It's like, who cares? <laughs> doesn't matter. The only point where this becomes a problem is if you're in the last half of the tribulation, then you might want to care about it a little bit. Don't be too, too superstitious about this number. It's for our information, but in the end, we'll be with Christ and it won't matter for us. Well, even with that, this is probably a little a hard, kind of a hard stop and a hard way to end all of this. A lot of interesting information, but disturbing at the same time. What do we do with this tonight, folks? Well, let me skip ahead. Skip ahead to the reassuring final outcome. Skip ahead to Revelation 19. Let's remind ourselves in the midst of this of the end of the story. Verse 11, chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many authentic crowns, diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Skip to verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is, that one is the focus. Not these strange, terrible beasts. Oh, we need to know about them. We need to have understanding as the Spirit gives understanding. We shouldn't be terrified and intimidated by them, folks. Because we know that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is going to return. And God will allow our great enemy just a little while to expend his final attempt at dominance, but then our king will return and reveal Satan's impotency to accomplish his desires. Keep that part in mind as we look through all this. And then be reminded, and whatever you face, it won't be as bad as the tribulation, but it may feel that way at times. Whatever our greatest trials, God is still in control. And just like those saints at the end times have to have confidence that God is with them, we have to have confidence today that, yes, he is in control of all things. 
And Christ has already defeated the enemy, folks. So don't live a defeated life. Live victoriously. We know the end of the story. And when the King of Kings comes, we will be with him and we will celebrate for all eternity. That's a good word to end on tonight. Father, thank you. These things are hard to work through. But we're glad to know that even though Satan will have this reign for a limited time, that it is limited. He really is operating on borrowed time. And these things will be terrible for the people on earth, especially for the saints. But even then, you will enable them to get through. And so we can apply this back to our lives that whatever we face, whatever great difficulty we are encountering right now, that you will get us through that as well to endure. Thank you for that. Help us to help. Let that be the thing that we remember from this message as we contemplate these things. Lord, thank you. We look forward to the day when Jesus will return. If it were today or tomorrow, we would greatly rejoice. And we would offer thanksgiving. Help us to do that in the meantime and sing praises and go out with joy. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.